And what is a test and what is its purpose? The dictionary, the dictionary defines a test as a procedure intended to establish the quality, performance, or reliability of something, especially before it is taken into widespread use. And possibly like you, when I think of tests, I think about school. Um, you know, we're in a class, we learn something, and then the teacher challenges us, and we have to prove that we know the material that we learned in that class. Another test, which some of you might have enjoyed, others might not have, um, that most people take is the driver's test, right? Where uh, we have to drive a random person in a car and drive perfectly one time in our life and everyone else says whatever with it after, right? But basically a test measures one's knowledge or skills to see if something measures up to a specific standard. And as you get older, you realize that those tests that happened in high school, those tests that happened in middle school, college, the driver's test, those tests were the easy ones, Right? Real-life tests suck. They do. We experience tests all the time, and we encounter tests when we have to make a difficult decision, a moment that may test our character. And all this to say that tests are a natural part of being human. It's natural. And it should be no surprise to us that being tested is also a huge, huge theme in the Bible. Characters in the Bible experience tests throughout the entire story to see if they can live up to God's intended purpose for humanity. And today, we're going to carefully examine some humans throughout the Bible and their interactions with God and testing to see if they respond with faithfulness or act by their own wisdom and disobedience. So the first point for today is the fundamental truths. Okay. Now, um, I realize now that I didn't put that. Yep, there you go. The verses will be back there. I messed up, so sorry. Um, but in Genesis, the very beginning of the biblical story God establishes his control and power as well as his love for creation. God creates order out of chaos with his word and spirit. He makes the unsustainable wild and waste planet into a good world. With waters controlled and filled with swimmers, uh, land prosperous with vegetation, sky filled with sky flyers, whatever the heck was flying in the sky, animals roaming the land, and these earth dwellers who are made in the image of God from the earth called humans. He loves all of his creation and all they have and all of them have the breath of life in them, but the humans are what? They're created in the image of God. And their vocation is different than other creations. They are to be his representatives on earth as it is in heaven. They are to subdue or rule the land on his behalf. And God's power creates this good world and everything in it, and God's grace and love allows him to share his good creation with others with the humans. He didn't have to share it. He didn't have to involve anyone else in it, but he does because he loves us. So let's establish the starting point. Number one, and these are part of your outline. I'm just going to spit it out here, is that God creates good out of bad. He creates order out of chaos. Amen? He is established as the God of gods. And we don't have enough time to go into this. It's really interesting. But if you compare the uh, Hebrew or biblical cosmology story, the story of the beginning of the earth, if you compare that with the Babylonian and Egyptian ancient cosmology stories, they're very similar in certain ways. But the way that the biblical author wrote Genesis 1 through 3 establishes God in such a manner, it's a very intentional with the methodology that God is the God of gods. He is the God of Israel and the God of everything else. So essentially, God is legit, right? He's legit. And then secondly, he loves humans and wants to use humans to do his work on earth. All humans have to do is follow his will 
rather than our own and, the, and things will be good. Sounds like a good deal. The problem comes with this. Humans are different. <laughs> okay, many scholars have discussed the phenomena of humans in comparison with all other creations that God has made. Uh, the clear ability to rationalize and critically think in humans versus other animals makes them unique as a species. And us, and as rational beings, humans ask questions, right? Or better yet, we just question everything. And of course, this isn't bad, right? I mean, without questioning things, we wouldn't improve in society. We wouldn't have technology innovation. But when we question God and question him enough to disobey him or do the opposite of what he asks, that's when we say that we don't actually trust that God is good, okay? And that he cares about us. And we tell him that we know better that we can help him. And that's the whole drama of the Bible. So summed up, okay, God is good. He's in control and he knows best. Amen? Humans were meant to do his will, but we don't trust him and we end up doing things in our own eyes. What, do we, what we think is best, we mess things up, usually really bad, really bad. So let's start off with the first story of the Bible. On page two, or chapter two, of after God has created his good world and puts humans as his representatives on earth, God establishes his expectations for the humans in the paradise garden. So Genesis 2, 15 through 17, and that was before the first point. I'm sorry that I messed that up. Um, the Lord God took the human and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the human saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of, knowledge, of the knowledge of good and bad, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God says, hey, you can enjoy this good rule to the fullest. It's for you to rule, but you have to listen to my will for your life. I'm a good God. You can trust me. So this begs the question, will humans trust God? Will they pass the test? Let's flip the page or whatever, the chapter to Genesis 3 and read verses 1 through 7. It opens up by saying this. Now the serpent was more shrewd. Some of your guys' uh, translations might say craftier, whatever, but I like the word shrewd. Uh, than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman, here, here's the key, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be what? Desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So after God has established his credibility, right? He's created this good world. He's done all these great things, created animals, humans. The humans still don't fully trust God and they fail the test. If we look at what happens with the woman, it says that she saw that the tree was good for food and it was delight to the eyes and that it was desirable. What humans do best is think that we know better than God or even that we can help God with what his will is for our lives. And let's not forget about that dang snake. That snake is the provoker. That snake represents the opposer to God's will. The snake even starts off with a false claim, right? Did you guys recognize that? That God commanded them not to eat of any tree in the garden. 
which wasn't true. The snake is a liar. He opposes God and seems to be this tempter. Now, this goes to um, our, let's add to our foundational truths, okay? And let's say it together. We're going to go to 1A, if you could put that on the screen, please. What is it? God is good, right? He made this good world. He is all-powerful, and he wants to share his good world with his creation. 1B says, humans aren't so good. Can we get an amen? <laughs> he, made him, he made humans to be his representatives on earth, which is a great opportunity and blessing. All that humans have to do is trust in his will. Obey his commands and things will be good. But what? We often, not all the time, but we often, most of the time, miss that mark, right? And let's go to 1C. Let's say it together. The snake opposes God. So these are the foundational truths that I want us to build upon. This snake character represents opposition to the will of God, whose main goal is to rob the humans of their calling and being the images of God. He wants to take that away from us. That's what he wants. Humans are really good at listening to the snake, which leads to questioning God, not trusting him, and doing things that are right in our own eyes, not God's. So let's be real. Why wouldn't the humans want to know good and bad, right? This seems like a very useful skill, does it not? But God's timing to give them knowledge according to his wisdom was the ideal, not humans discovering on their own merit. So the problem isn't that humans wanted to know good and bad. That's important knowledge, yes? The problem is that they didn't trust God. They felt like God was holding out on them, okay? They, they felt like he was holding something out or keeping something from them. So they saw and took what seemed right in their own eyes. And when the man and woman listen to the snake rather than God, they're saying that God's plan isn't good for them that they know better than God or can help him out in his will. The humans give into temptation and choose to eat from the forbidden tree, beginning humanity's downward spiral of sin. There's also irony in the story because the humans ate of the tree of knowing good and bad to be like God, even though they were already made what? In his image, in his likeness. This whole garden story is so much more than the origin of our planet or humanity. It's the foundation of how we should shape our reality. That God loves us. He cares about us. He wants to use us. But with that comes testing. Testing that asks, do we trust in him and his goodness or do we trust ourselves? This garden story seems uh, to bother a lot of people. Understandably so. It's a, it's a kind of crummy story, <laughs> you know? But it causes us to wonder the next question, why would God test humans in this way? Why does he do it? The garden wasn't some random test conducted by a cruel God who wanted humans to fail. The scene in the Garden of Eden and the choice between our path or abundant life in God is something that all of us face. God designed humans to be co-creators, co-rulers with him. This is what it means to be the image of God. And the only way to succeed at this vocation is to eat literally of God's own life we just did that with the Passover, right? Taken of the blood and of the body, right? Thank you, Julian. Um, and we need to trust his wisdom rather than our own. This means that the opportunity to truly be human in the way God intended is also a test. Literally, just living every day to be the human that we were created to be is a test. And the choice is up to us. Adam and Eve choose to eat of the tree of knowing good and bad, going down a path that diverged them from God's instruction and wisdom. Yes, they were tricked into this choice by a deceptive creature, but in the end, they made the choice. As a result, they were banished from the garden, 
losing access to the tree of life and access to the complete unfiltered presence of God, but the opportunity to walk with God and rule over creation on his behalf did not disappear. In fact, the very next story is about the test given to Adam and Eve. Sorry, about how the test given to Adam and Eve is given again to their children. It's the story of family feud or sibling rivalry. So number two today is the test is hard to pass. It's hard to pass. So Adam and Eve have two sons, and most scholars believe that they were twins named Cain and Abel. And let's go to Genesis 4, uh, verses 1 through 8. We're going to stop in between there, so just stick there. Uh, First, we're going to read 1 through 4a, which says, Now Adam knew his wife Eve. She conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain worked off of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the land an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So this story begins with two brothers offering sacrifices to God. Cain offers a sacrifice from his crop. Abel offers a sacrifice from his flock. The narrative doesn't tell us why they're offering sacrifices, but we can start to infer about what's going on. Humanity's relationship with God seems in trouble, right? They're no longer inside the garden in God's immediate presence. They're outside suffering the consequences of the first generation's actions, but Cain and Abel want to reclaim their calling as image bearers and rule creation alongside God. So they are inclined to symbolize their loyalty and commitment to God by performing a sacrifice to him. But as soon as the sacrifices are made, we see another layer of humanity. Not only do we have trouble trusting God, but we can be very harmful to other humans, right? So let's look at verses 4b through 5a. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So we aren't told why the brothers offered sacrifices. We also aren't told why God favors one sacrifice over um, another. This is an interesting question to ponder for another time. And there's uh, a verse in Hebrews that sort of answers it. But in this story, direct narrative, there's no reason given, right? If we had read this for the first time, never knowing anything about the Bible, the story doesn't tell us why God looked that favor, uh, with favor on um, Abel's sacrifice, not Cain's. But the key takeaway here is while Cain and Abel's sacrifices were intended to solve a problem, they instead created a new problem. How is Cain going to handle his unrecognized sacrifice? So let's keep reading. Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you don't do well, sin is crouching at the the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Again, we don't know why Cain's offering was bad, but the situation gives us a beautiful exchange between God and Cain. And I love this, right? While Cain is angry that his sacrifice isn't accepted, God comes to Cain like a nurturing father and gives him guidance. He tells Cain that he has a choice between doing what is right in his own eyes, like his parents, or what is right in the eyes of God. And this should trigger our memories and remind us immediately of the choice presented to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? God asked them to choose life over death, And now God is presenting the same choice to their child. Cain has the chance to make the right choice when his parents failed. But what happens? Verse 8 tells us that Cain spoke to Abel's brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Unfortunately, Cain does not make the right actions, or Cain does not make right the actions of his parents. 
he too fails the test that God has presented before him, allowing his anger to turn into violence against his own brother. Now, I'm sure most of us haven't killed our own brother, but I'm sure we feel like that sometimes with our siblings, right? He murders Abel despite God's warning of sin's constant predatory presence. It's a troubling picture of humanity that sets the tone for the rest of the biblical story. In this exchange, we also get a vivid picture of how vulnerable this choice between God's wisdom or our own can be. Even when we choose to do what is right in the eyes of God, sin is still crouching at our door. The the word for crouching in the text that we just read is the word used for animals who stalk their prey. Kind of reminds us like that deceptive creature in the garden, right? That led them into sin. And here God describes sin as a creature waiting to pounce. Sin is a predator looking for opportunities to destroy us, but God instructs Cain to rule over it. And we know that we can't rule over sin ourselves, right? We have to rely again on the wisdom of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And even, in today, even today, in our modern context, we can recognize the inherent difficulty of tests. They expose our abilities and whether or not we have what it takes to actually trust in God. For Cain, the jealousy of his brother results in a test that presents him with the difficult choice of whether or not to act out of anger. Will he let his anger turn into violence or will he rule over his sinful impulses? Which we need to ask ourselves today, do we recognize that sin is crouching, ready to attack and devour us? Do we rely on God fully and trust in him? Because I know it's easy to answer yes to that question. It's really easy to say, yes, of course I trust in God. But the Bible would argue that most of the time we listen to that dang snake and we don't do what God wants for us. We fail the tests. So 2A is we don't trust God fully and hurt others in the process, right? We just saw that through, through Cain and now we're gonna see it through a couple other examples. So with the fr- first breakdown of the two tests in the Bible, let's look at a few more. Have you guys heard of Abraham? Abram? He's considered major patriarch of the Judeo-Christian religion. And although God uses him tremendously, Abraham or Abram failed some pretty big tests, <laughs> okay? So let's go to Genesis 12, all right? <clears throat> and we're gonna read verses one through three. The Lord has said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abram obeys God. He leaves his country to go to the land that God will provide. He ends up in the hills east of Bethel where he builds an altar to the Lord. And then he journeys toward the Negev. And during this time, a famine strikes. So during the time of travel, going to where God has called him to go, a famine strikes. And although we're not told in scripture that this is a test, this famine, if we use what we've gone over so far with the garden story and the Cain and Abel story, we can tell that this is in fact a test. Why? Because God didn't tell Abraham to go to Egypt. When Abraham realized a famine had come, instead of going where God wanted him to go and trust that God would provide for him through the famine, he went to Egypt. Where, did, where he ended up in trouble. We'll, we'll read it in a second. And again, a lot like the first human's logic, why wouldn't Abram go somewhere where the food, where there would be food and shelter? It makes logical sense to do this, yes? The issue is that God told him to be somewhere else. <laughs> now let's see how failing the test affects us and other people. 
Let's uh, skip to Genesis 12, same chapter, but we're going to read verses 10 through 20. Now, there was a famine in the land. This is, this is talking about what we just talked about. And Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. Again, should he have been there? I don't think so. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know you what a beautiful woman you are. Here we go, ready? When the Egyptians see, okay, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife and they will kill me and let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. The Bible's pretty scandalous. I don't know if you guys ever read it like this. <laughs> when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians, what? Saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake and Abram acquired sheep, cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? That's messed up. Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram and his, to his men and they sent him on his way with his wife, with everything that he had. Abram's inability to trust God and pass the test results in him being in a foreign land where he again fails. He doesn't trust that God would protect him and he lies about his wife, which causes infliction of diseases on the Pharaoh and his household. And this is interesting because when I asked the youth group, because we've gone over this a lot, why, did, um, <clears throat> why God inflicted diseases on Pharaoh, even though it was Abram who lied and disobeyed God, I got the answer that Pharaoh saw and took Sarai, which is exactly what the first humans did with the tree of knowing good and bad, right? I think this is very possible to reason. And I love kids because they pick up those things and they're so good about seeing what's right in front of them, right? I also think another reason is that since God's original promise was that he'd use and bless Abram, he had to save him from this problem, from his own destruction, while also showing Abram a lesson that his actions affect others around him, sometimes even more than himself. So let's go to 2B, which is God doesn't need our help. Okay, he doesn't. And I'm picking on Abram today, but it serves a purpose. <laughs> so let's go to one more Abram story. In God's original promise to Abram, he said that Abram would become a great nation. The problem was that Sarai and Abram were unable to have children. How could Abram come from a great nation if he had no kids? If we can move to Genesis 16, a couple more pages down and read verses one through four, it says, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne had born him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, what? Took her Egyptian slave and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. First things first, when the author wrote that Sarai took Egypt, the Egyptian slave and gave it to her husband, the author is using the same verbiage that he used when Eve gives the fruit of Adam or gives the fruit to Adam in the garden. Yes, do we see that? So boom, right? Boom. That's a hyperlink to tell us something is going on here. There is a test of some sort. Next, what I want us to really notice is that Sarai sees the original problem 
She sees that her, her and Abram can't make a great nation because she can't have kids. And in her own eyes, based on her own logic and rationale, she says, I'm going to help God with this problem and I am going to solve it by giving another woman to my husband to have children with. God, because of me, Sarai, we can become the great nation that you promised us to be. And how does Abram respond? Just like Adam. He goes, okay, right? And that gets me every time. Come on, dude, come on, right? Adam, Abram, come on, right? So what's the point? What's the point? Why am I talking about this? Because sometimes when we are faced with the test to trust God or not, we choose to do things in our own will because we think we're helping God or we think that we're actually doing the right decision even though he might be calling us to do something else. Another way to say this is if you think that you're doing something for God, but it is not in alignment with his commands or will, you're not obeying him. Sarah thought she was helping God, but in reality, she gave her husband another woman to basically be raped. And this was completely out of line, completely out of line with the ideals that God has for us. One, we are monogamous. Two, humans are to be protected and loved, not oppressed, taken advantage of, or made into possessions. Can I get an amen? Amen. Here's the good news that comes from the story though. Just like God heard Abel's blood cry from the ground, if you guys read the whole story, it's a beautiful passage. He hears Hagar's cry of misery and promised her son many descendants. And a quick side note, Hagar is the first person in the Bible to give God a name. She says, you are the God who sees me. And we can see how good God is. Even in the midst of our mess-ups, what we do to other people, he still remains faithful and protects the marginalized and the abused. So for our last two stories about how humanity fails the test that God gives them, we're going to skip to uh, book two in our Bibles to Exodus. And this is cool because we're doing Exodus in the youth group right now. And it's really, really, um, it's really, really present in, in my life. And I really love it. So, um, in the book of Genesis, it ends with Joseph, Abraham's, who's the guy we just talked about, great-grandson, saving the whole world by interpreting the dreams of Pharaoh in Egypt, or Pharaoh of Egypt, excuse me, and advises Egypt to store food before a long famine is to come. Uh, Joseph finds favor in Pharaoh's eyes. He moves his family from Canaan to Egypt. Israel settles in the best land, if you guys remember. Um, it's called Goshen, and they seemingly live in peace with Egypt, right? It kind of leaves us off like that. But after the time of Joseph, once we get into the time of the Exodus, things have drastically changed. So let's go to Exodus 1, and we're going to go 6 through 7, verse 6 through 7. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So the setting is this. The Israelites are in the best land, right? They're in the best land. They are saved from the famine, which is death, okay? And they are multiplying. It sounds a lot like the garden story in Genesis 1 through 3. Humans are in a good world, right? They're saved from the chaotic waters of death. There's order to this chaos. And they're meant to multiply and fill the earth, okay? And I think this is the point. The Hebrews are in the ideal state that God has for humanity. And just like in the garden, what happens? There comes a test. So let's look at verses eight through 10. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, there we go. He said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them 
or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So if it's not clear yet, okay, what's happening is that the test is not for Israel, but for the Pharaoh. Is the Pharaoh going to do what is right in his own eyes based on fear, or is he going to stick to the ideal of what God wants? The new Pharaoh doesn't care about Joseph and his family, which I think also means he has no fear of the Israelite God, Yahweh. He sees the power of the Israelites, and instead of keeping the peace, harmony, and love with them, fear takes over, and he decides to oppress the Israelites and force them into slavery. Now, I said earlier that, it, uh, that the beginning of this chapter has a lot of parallels with the, gen- with the garden story. And here's another point I don't want us to miss. In Genesis 3, when the snake is introduced, it said that the snake was shrewd, right? And what does Pharaoh say about, growing, about the growing Israelites? We must deal, how? Shrewdly with them. Do you guys think this is a mistake? No. Pharaoh represents how evil humanity can become when we fail the test. He seemingly becomes the snake. He literally becomes the snake. Or in God's words from Genesis 3, the seed of the snake who is in opposition to the seed of the woman. His inability to humble himself before God and treat others with respect leads him to disregard the Israelites as human. Okay, He turns them into property. Mm -mm. And if you know the story, the Pharaoh of Egypt keeps failing the test later on 10 times, right? With the 10 acts of deconstruction that God does on, on Egypt. And it leads to God overthrowing Egypt, basically destroying them, destroying their army and frees the Israelites from the slavery. The Pharaoh was the author of his own demise because he did what was right, what? In his own eyes, not the will of God. Now for our last point, we're going to talk about the fact that number three, tests can be scary, but God is trustworthy. So after God rescues the Israelites from Egypt, it's a beautiful story. The Israelites find themselves in a new beginning. They're basically on their own for the first time in like hundreds of years. Um, And they're journeying to the land that God had promised Abraham. And during this time, post-slavery until the conquering of the promised land, it's basically all about testing, literally. And there are stories about God testing them to trust in him for water and food. And just like the stories we talked about before, they don't really pass the test. They're still kind of like, eh. Yet God in his mercy and love continues to work with them and uses this guy named Moses to be their leader. And then we get to this really cool story in Exodus 19. And we're going to try to apply everything that we've gone over so far into reading and analyzing this passage. I promise we'll be done soon. I know we're going late, but let's go to chapter 19 of uh, Exodus. And I'm reading from the NRSVA, which I will tell you why later. At the third new moon of the Israel, after the Israelites had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They had journeyed from Rephidim, entered the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Here is God again reminding them of his credibility and power, okay? Verse five. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be treasured, my treasured possession out of all the peoples. So let's pause. This is the overall test of the Bible, right? If you obey God's commands, right? Indeed, the whole earth is mine, verse six, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. God is saying the test is this. 
If you keep my commands and obey my voice, you will be my treasured possessions. Get this. You won't be a kingdom with priests. You will be a kingdom of priests. Okay. Let's go to verse seven. So Moses came, summoned the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. The people all answered as one. They're all together. They're like, yeah, we're in this, right? Everything that the Lord has spoken, we will do. <laughs> Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud in order that the people may hear when I am speak to, with you and so trust you ever after. When Moses had told the words of the people to the Lord, verse 10 says, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes, prepare them for the third day because on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set limits for the people all around saying, be careful not to go up the mountain or touch the edge of it. Any who touch the mountain shall be put to death. Here we go. Now, no hand shall touch them, but they shall be stoned or shot with arrows, whether animal or human being, they shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they may go up on the mountain. Okay. Now, I am using the NRSVA version, and the reason being is because in Hebrew, this verse in Hebrew says that the Israelites may go on the mountain. But in English, if you guys are reading ESV, NIV, whatever, whatever it is, most of them, they translate it to approach the mountain or go to the mountain, right? The more accurate translation from biblical Hebrew would be go up on the mountain. The more, um, sorry, now we can't spend a ton of time here, okay? But many scholars believe the reason why most translations say approach the mountain rather than go up onto the mountain is because of what happens later in the story. But I want us to pay attention to why I think it's important to understand that God's original intention was for Israel as a whole group, okay, as a whole, to go up on that mountain together. So Moses, verse 14, went down from the mountain to the people. He consecrated the people and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, prepare for the third day, abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was, a thun there was thunder and lightning as well as a thick cloud on the mountain. It's pretty scary. And a blast, here we go, a blast of a trumpet so loud that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. The smoke went up like a smoke of a furnace while the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the trump, trumpet excuse me, grew louder and louder, it's almost like God's trying to get them to move. Come on, come on, let's go. Moses would speak to God. Moses would speak and God would answer him in thunder. When the Lord descended upon, the mountain, upon Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, the Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Now let's pause again. When were the Israelites supposed to go onto the mountain? When the trumpet sounded, right? But what did they do? They were scared and they did not want to go on the mountain. So let's go to verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people not to break through to the Lord to look. Otherwise, many of them will perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people are not permitted to come up to Mount Sinai for you yourself warned us saying, set limits around the mountain and keep it holy. The Lord said to him, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let either priests or the people break through to come up to the Lord. Otherwise he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, I know it's a little confusing because the way it's written is it, it's, it's not really chronologically in order, the way that they wrote the story. 
But this is why the next chapter is very important. So let's skip to the next chapter, verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 18. And God has just given Moses the Ten Commandments. It's like this random piece of like, we're just going to insert this like Ten Commandment thing. And then we're going to go back to the story that we just read in verse 19. Okay. Um, so we're going back to the narrative, which gives us more insight to what we just read in chapter 19. So verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 18 says, when all the people witnessed the thunder and lightning and what? The sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, what were they? They were afraid and trembled and stood at a distance and said to Moses, ah, you speak to us, we will listen, but do not, lock, do not let God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come only to test you and to put the fear of him upon you so that you do not sin. Then the people stood at a distance. I think this tells us that they didn't even really approach the mountain at all, right, ever. And while Moses drew near to the thickness of darkness where God was, they failed to do so. So there's two schools of thought here. I gotta be fair, I gotta share, you know, everything. The first and what comes uh, from the modern English translation is that God never intended Israel to go up the mountain. They were to go to the foot of it. But because they were scared, rightfully so, they stood at a distance and didn't even approach it. But given the Hebrew, which I talked about earlier, which has God giving the command of when the trumpet sounds, all of you go up the mountain, not just to the mountain. Um, and they respond by being afraid and not going up. They actually fail the test. Here we go. And give up the ideal that they would be a kingdom of priests. Now, because they failed the test, they will have priests, of course, um, to intercede for them, but won't be a kingdom of priests. Thank God they had Moses, though, because if you know the rest of the story, he saves them after they fail a test again by making a golden calf. It's a crazy story. Um, the point I'm getting at is that sometimes the tests that God gives us are scary. They might look like going up a scary, loud, fiery mountain, they could look like walking around a fortress for six days and then blowing trumpets to defeat it. They could look like facing a giant that everyone else is scared of. They could look like praying to God even though you'd be thrown into the lion's den. God's will isn't always easy. And sometimes it looks like the rational, rationally and logically wrong choice to do. I mean, why would Israel want to go up that fiery, scary mountain in the first place? The point was, do you trust God? Now, the Bible is filled with these stories, like, like everywhere, right? We could spend years going through these stories, um, the ones, um, but these are the ones that I want to talk about today. And I encourage you to use like what we've kind of talked about to read those stories and see how many times you see the, the words like see and took and, and gave, right? And it's like a very big theme, okay? But what we can see is that humans mostly fail the test. We usually don't fully trust God, and God knew and knows that, so he decided to come and be the true human for us, the one who follows God fully and perfectly. Jesus is amazing, okay? And every time he's hit with a test, he passes. Luke 4 says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led, up to a high, led him up to a high place and showed him an instant all the kingdoms 
in, all, in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be all yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left them until an opportune time. We see Jesus pass the test, following God's will, relying on him for strength rather than his own strength. We see humility, respect, and fear for his father. And you know how we talk about scary tests? Well, Jesus passed the scariest one of all. After the Passover meal, he and his disciples go to the garden of Gethsemane, where in Matthew 26, it says that he threw himself on the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. What? Yet not what I want, but what you want. He prays this three times, guys. Just like the Israelites waited three days before the trumpet, just like he was tempted three times, he prays three times. And he always answered with, not my will, but your will be done. He followed God's will to death. The scariest sobering test anyone could ever have. And guess what? He passed with flying colors. You see, Jesus is the true human. He is what we were all created to be, but failed to be. But through his perfect life, his death on a tree and his resurrection, we can be like him. With the help of the Holy Spirit in our church community, we can become imitators of Christ. As Paul says in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So let's wrap this up. I know it's getting late. I'm sorry, guys. I'm not here to beat us up this morning. It's not why I'm here. I'm here to learn with you, okay? I'm learned that our reality of how we see the world should be rooted in these biblical stories. And the theme of this test, of the test is huge. It's a huge one. It was a problem in the beginning and it's still a problem today. And I know I, know, I know I have tests and can be testy all the time. Just ask Julie. <laughs> but we're in this together as a community whose whole purpose is to become more like Jesus. We need to understand that God's way is the best way. We just talked about conventional wisdom for what, almost a year through Proverbs, right? And as Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So when we are faced with the test, the best way to go is to trust God in his goodness, not our own ways. This whole idea of a test is what is on James' mind when he says in chapter one, to consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you're faced trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And I'm gonna end with this. As the Bible Project team puts it, the pattern of the test is important. It should cause us to wonder Will humans face these same tests? The answer is yes. We, we, we all will be confronted with a similar test and the choice is up to us. Are we going to live by God's wisdom or our own? Are we going to let our sin rule us or we will, rule, will we rule over sin? Will we partner with God to bear his image in the world or will we live on our own? The story of the Bible makes it abundantly clear that humans are unable to pass this test and, the, and seize the opportunity to be truly human. But the good news of the biblical story is that God himself became human to pass the test on our behalf. And the test is still before all of us. An opportunity to be united with God as he intended. 
Sin is a powerful force, and this is no simple test, but there is hope. The test has already been passed on our behalf. Jesus came to do the work humanity could not, reuniting us with God and restoring us to our divine purpose and the ideal of the garden. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father, you are so good to us. You're, you're merciful, you're, you're gracious, filled with loyal love. You want us to be imitators of you. And as you shape us and grow us through the tests that you give us, help us to, to trust in you. May we bring the kingdom of God here as it is in heaven. May we ask for forgiveness from others and give it to those who have wronged us. Provide for us what we need as a community. Deliver us from the opposer. For you are worthy of praise and trust. We love you. We thank you. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Now, before I let you guys go,